Before her cookbooks on Indian cuisine made her famous in Britain, actress Madhur Jafri was schooled by cooks in her home country, back in Delhi. They had a unique way of explaining what went into their traditional recipes. And I would say, how do you make it? She says, oh, my child, what can I tell you? It is made with the dew that comes from heaven. Reporter Nick Bryant noticed a lot during his stint in India, like how the kind of car you drive is quite a status symbol. If you've got an Indian car, then you probably just enter the middle class. If you've got a Japanese car, then you're a bit above that. If you've got a European car, like a BMW or a Mercedes, then you've really arrived. Plus, friends from Italy explain how Italians control what looks like chaos to outsiders. You can even predict when the rail lines will go on strike. Like so much else in Italy, it's seasonal. You'll never have a strike in July and August because they're off on vacation. Why would they strike? Get personal with India and Italy in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When you step into the bustling streets of a city in India for the first time, the sensory overload can be overwhelming until you make a few friends. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up shortly on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Madhur Jafri gives us a delightfully personal look at the India she grew up in during the days before and after its independence from Britain. And friends from Italy explain how the apparent chaos of their country actually has a pattern to it. Once you understand how everyday life operates there, it gets a little easier to turn your frustration into a game of go with the flow and see how things work themselves out. The same philosophy comes in handy when you travel in India, where our first guest, Nick Bryant, spent years as a foreign correspondent based in New Delhi. He wrote about his adventures there in his book, Confessions from Correspondent Land, The Dangers and Delights of Life as a Foreign Correspondent. Nick, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Rick. In your book, you have a a very vivid image of how you can tilt the camera and go from desperation to Hmm. affluence, illustrating the gap between rich and poor people in India. Take us there visually if you could. Well, I'll take you to Hyderabad, or Cyberabad as it's sometimes called, because of its cyber technology hub uh, that's grown up there. Uh, You can see these extraordinary mirror glass buildings with their satellites on the top of the roof, satellites which are picking up all the phone calls from uh, America with people asking about their credit card details and things like that. And then you can tilt the camera down from those mirror glass buildings, those 21st century office buildings, to the slums down below and their cheek and jowl. They're right next Mm. to each other. You can tilt the camera or pan the camera from the luxury cars that you'll find, usually in traffic jams in India. Most major cities in India have terrible traffic congestion because the roads simply cannot accommodate the number of cars that the middle class can now afford. You can pan the camera from those luxury cars to the children begging um, at the side of them, pleading with people to try and put down their windows so they can get money from them. Mm. That was always a shot I tended to resist, Rick, to be honest, because I knew that at times I was the person in that car and the camera would have been very damning of of my reaction. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many beggars on the streets of India that you don't pull down the windows of every single one. It's a powerful experience to be in a car with your control and your wealth and and to roll down the window, you've got the real world physically coming in through the window at you. Yeah, and India now is really this tale of two nations, mm-hmm. uh, super rich and a middle class who are prospering and very ambitious. Basically, it's... And, you, a, and, you, and real poverty. You've got a billion people. You've got a, a huge and powerful middle class. You've got an elite. Mm. And then you've got, what, 800 million people in poverty. Something like that. I mean, I think the middle class is probably about 250 million now. So well, sort of akin to the size of the United States or approaching it. And... You've got an awful lot of poverty. And I was there 
at a time when India was shining. That was a great slogan of the then government. They really thought that uh, the economy was humming and India was getting a kind of level of international recognition that it hadn't got before. It was mm-hmm. sort of seen as a bit of a basket case for so many decades. Nick, you talk in your book about India almost waging a war against its poor. How are the poor being accommodated in India? And what are they doing with this intense situation? Well, this is the problem. The, the government that came up with the India Shining slogan ended up being thrown out. Most people thought it wouldn't re-election easily because the country mm. seemed, on the face of it, in the urban centres to be so prosperous. But if you went out into the countryside, you met the farmers who were committing suicide because drought had left them with no crops and no money and no hope and no future. And this was the story in large swathes of the country. I mean, you were talking to an educated middle class in the cities, but in the countryside, you were talking to an illiterate poor and really there was a big chasm opening up in, in Indian society. Mm. There's a Congress-led government now. Traditionally, they've always been more mindful of the needs of the poor, but it's an extraordinarily difficult task in raising all the boats. I mean, poverty is getting better in India. There are more people who are enjoying a more abundant life, mm-hmm. but, I mean, the problems there are just immense. Well, in your book, Confessions from Correspondent Land, you talk about Demolition Day, when people who live in a slum are given 10 minutes to grab their belongings and and clear out. Yeah, and India would really present that as progress, that they were destroying these slums and in their place building modern office blocks and modern flats and apartment buildings. But of course the problem was that the people who lived in the slums didn't have anywhere else to go. So literally they were made homeless within minutes as the bulldozers sort of went through their communities. And uh, it's an extraordinary sight. I always remember seeing a very proud woman dressed in her sari, beautiful Flawless saris. Some mm. of the most poorest people in India are often some of the best dressed, and, and mm. they take great pride in their appearance. And just seeing her home destroyed by the bulldozers with the police keeping her back from intervening, oh. it was a, a, a very shocking sight. And that was right next to Mumbai Airport. And one of the reasons why is because the authorities in Mumbai didn't like people flying into the new India ah. and seeing the old India right next to the runway. I was just going to ask you about that because my memory is flying into Mumbai, taking a taxi down that freeway into the city to India Gate and going by just endless slums that seemed to break out like a rash. And my feeling was they would bulldoze it one day and next week it'd be back up again, tapping in illegally to the electrical system and uh, just sprawling everywhere. And you can almost imagine the frustration of city planners when they can't keep those slums down. Yeah, exactly. And one of the interesting things about those slums, they're, they're not necessarily people who live in poverty anymore. Uh, hmm. They're middle class. Uh, some of them are sort of lower middle class Indians who've got jobs and got hmm. an income, but <sighs> simply cannot afford the kind of spiraling property prices that you get in Mumbai anymore. I mean, Mumbai is kind of like New York. It's just extraordinarily expensive place to live. Uh-huh. People can't afford apartments. They can't afford homes. So they tend to live in these shanties and slums. And that's why they grow up so quickly, because it's not necessarily the really extreme poverty stricken it's often middle-class people who know how to build things quickly. Is that sort of a symptom of this uh, movement of people in the countryside looking for work in the big cities also? Yeah, that's always been one of the big problems with the big urban centers of India is, is they get this influx of people who find it very hard to make a living in the rural parts of India, so they go to the cities, and, and the, the cities have found it extraordinarily difficult to accommodate them. And it's created this huge huh. infrastructure problem for India, as you know. What a challenge. I mean, when you think that... Well, they've got three times the people that we do in the United States, and uh, a lot of them are packed into these massive urban centers. You write in your book about how India is in the throes of a revolution of rising expectations. Mm. Uh, do you think that the Indians of tomorrow are, are going to be better off than today, or do they have some sort of a demographic time bomb in their midst? 
Uh, I think many Indians will be better off. I mean, one of the great advantages that India has got over China, for instance, is the demography of India. It's a very young nation, so that's partly why it's so ambitious, partly why it's so restless, and partly why it's so energetic. One of the great disadvantages that India's got over China is the level of illiteracy in the countryside. China does mm-hmm. much better on those kind of literacy indices. Mm-hmm. So... Um, no, I think uh, many people clearly in India will be enjoying a much better future. Mm. Um, and hopefully the poverty stricken too. I mean, as I say, the, the, the boats have been rising. I mean, a lot of the boats have been rising mm-hmm. in terms of affluence and wealth, but they're not rising quickly enough. Nick Bryant is a senior fellow with the University of Sydney. Nick earned his PhD in American politics from Oxford and was a foreign correspondent for the BBC for many years based in New York, Washington, New Delhi and Sydney. At the time of our interview, he had just written Confessions from Correspondent Land, The Dangers and Delights of Life as a Foreign Correspondent. It's a lively account of his adventures in India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Australia, and Guantanamo Bay during the George W. Bush and Bill Clinton presidencies. Nick has also authored When America Stopped Being Great and The Bystander, John F. Kennedy and the Struggle for Black Equality. Now, my feeling about massive societies with a billion people like China and India that are doing quite well as a whole economically is that their seas of untouchables and peasants, uh, the lower caste, are kind of the infantry that provides the society the ability to march forward, but they're really going to be the losers. And then the modern-day maharajas and the vast middle class is going to rise on their shoulders. What's the state of the untouchables and the low end of the caste system in India today, and how is that evolving with modernity, and do they get any of the fruits of this new prosperity? Well, at the lower end of the caste system, you don't get so many of the awful crimes that you used to get in the past, the kind of persecution, the murder of untouchables. That's not quite as prevalent as it used to be. But, uh, you know, clearly the caste system is this great invisible force in India, which as an outsider it's kind of hard to make sense of Mm -hmm. and to fully explain what you do get in India is many people feel just reconciled to their fate and reconciled mm-hmm. to their caste, and that impacts social mobility. But one of the great things about the technological revolution that India has seen is many of the people who have reached the top of these high-tech companies and these high-tech outsourcing companies are actually people from the lower caste. So that is definitely a positive. One of the things you see on a plane, for instance, it doesn't matter which caste you are, if you can afford the ticket for business class, <laughs> then you can get in business class. So... Uh, India's got a long way towards being an egalitarian society. It probably never will be. Uh, But there are some positive signs. You talk about how the new rich really enjoy showing off their wealth, and this conspicuous wealth shows itself in fun ways. Do people still put refrigerators actually in their living rooms so they can let people know they got one? (laughs) Well, that was a great status symbol in the early days when, uh, you know, these consumer durables were still pretty (laughs) rare in Indian society that... Rather than put the fridge in your kitchen, you put it in the middle of ah. your lounge so that all visitors would get to see it and, and you'd be parading your new wealth. It's not quite as ostentatious <laughs> as that because refrigerators are now pretty commonplace yeah. and people are getting flat screen TVs and, and oh, cars yeah. in the driveway. So it's not quite as bad as that. But yeah, there is still a lot of one-upmanship in Indian households and a lot of consumerism as well. Cars now have become the great status symbol. And uh, there's a kind of gradation of cars as well. If you've got an Indian car, then you probably just enter the middle class. If you've got a Japanese car, then you're a bit above that. If you've got a European car like a BMW or a Mercedes, then you've really arrived. So how are Hindi values 
at odds with commercialism and materialism, or is it a is it a graceful kind of partnership as India? I don't progresses? think I don't think there's any contradiction at all. I mean, Hindu is a gospel of prosperity in many ways. The gods were rapacious, ah. or many of them were, in their desire for earthly things. So. I don't think there's any great contradiction in uh, a lot of um, Hinduism and the accumulation of great wealth. Are religious rituals incorporated into the business and retail world? Yeah, one of the interesting things about buying a new car in India is often you get it blessed and uh, you have a puja, a prayer service, to celebrate your car and you'll have sort of carnations <laughs> on the on the engine and things like this. I mean, and again, in the stock markets in Mumbai, um, you know, a lot of the stock exchange firms will start the trading season or the trading week with with a prayer and they'll get a, a holy man in to do the business so uh, yeah i mean the separation of church and and uh, religion and money making in india there isn't really a separation oh listening to you talk just reminds me what a delight it is to travel in india and why it's it's really my favorite country on this planet to travel through we've been talking oh, with nick country. bryant and nick bryant writes confessions from correspondent land the dangers and delights of life as a foreign correspondent Nick, thanks so much, and good luck with your work. Rick, many thanks. It's been my pleasure. Our personal look at India continues in just a minute with actress, TV host, and food writer Madhur Jafri on her 90th birthday. She shares with us her memories of childhood in India during the Raj and World War II and the comfort foods she enjoys from the traditions of home in Delhi. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Sono Ferenc Mate. Io viaggio sempre con Rick Steves. I'm uh, Ferenc Mate from Montalcino, Tuscany, and I travel with Rick Steves. 1933 was an interesting year to be born in India. When Madhur Joffrey was born in British Delhi, her grandmother wrote the Sanskrit word Om on her tongue with honey. She witnessed the eventual independence of India in 1947. She's credited with introducing the film directors James Ivory and Ishmael Merchant to each other, and she later appeared in a number of their epic films. She's also been called the Julia Child of Indian cooking. Madhur Joffrey joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the colorful, flavorful world she grew up in and to add a little welcome spice to our lives today. Madhur, it's great to have you back on Travel with Rick Steves. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Now, when we think of uh, the Raj, what does that mean when we think of India during the Raj? Well, that's the period when the British ruled India. And it has a romantic air about it because it sort of promoted that way. And a lot of films that have been done, television series that have been done, various uh, wonderful dramas of that period, they tend to make you think it was a very romantic period, but it wasn't, because Indians were being ruled by somebody else, and we were rebelling. We started rebellions around 1857 and have been rebelling ever since, and uh, we kept rebelling until we got our independence. Luckily for us, we had incredible leaders like Mahatma Gandhi and Nehru who believed in nonviolence, so we got our independence technically, non-violently, as far as the government was concerned. So it was a great period for me to be born in. I was born during the Raj. That was my birth date, is during the Raj. And then in 1947, we were independent, and I remember going to see the flag, the Indian flag being raised 
Everybody wow. throwing their caps in the air. Nehru and Mountbatten jointly in whites, riding a horse carriage together, one going out, one coming in. It was a grand old time. In whites, one leader going out, one leader coming in. That must have been incredible. Incredible. And the energy and enthusiasm. I think there must have been several million people in this one place where the flag was being raised. And it is as if, you know, pent up emotions that we were storing, not for ourselves only, but our ancestors, were suddenly there saying, good grief, we did it. We did it. (laughs) Now, what was the relationship between Britain and India after that? Was it angry or was it, okay, we learned, we had that chapter, we're going to work together now in a more respectful way? It's, it's interesting. I think when the British gave us independence, they did two or three rather rotten things at the same time. They partitioned India, as mm-hmm. you know. So now we have Pakistan, and then eventually we had Pakistan and Bangladesh. And the line was cut by some, I don't know who drew the line, but it just went through villages and, you know, every mm. other little place without really any thought. We all love the English, but they draw lines in yes. ways that cause problems 100 years later. Absolutely. It's amazing Absolutely. How, how coarsely they draw lines right. in some office in London. Yeah, right. I mean, even today, when you think of the trouble in Syria or the trouble in Iraq, Absolutely. it goes back to those darn English lines. Exactly. So we suffered greatly, and we lost a million people as people rushed from one border to the other, you know. Huge was death. population swaps, yeah. because this was basically... Okay, we need a place for Muslims and we need a place for Hindus, right? right? So Pakistan, Muslim, India, Hindu, but it's more complicated. It's much more complicated. Today in India, there's major um, Muslim states. Exactly. We have more Muslims than any other country other than Indonesia. In India? Yes, I didn't know that. You so know, you got challenges. You got, got challenges, challenges with we British imperialism. You got challenges with Muslims and Hindus. And as you Hindus. said when you started talking, is that when you come to India, you're not coming to a tidy place. You're coming to... <laughs> A very untidy place. And that is both the charm, the marvel, and everything else about India. It's our delight to have Madhur Jafri as our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Among her lengthy list of acting credits, she's starred in a number of Merchant Ivory films since the 1960s and on several episodes of TV's Law & Order. Her memoir of childhood in India is called Climbing the Mango Trees, and her most recent book features folklore and mythological tales of India that parents tell their children. It's arranged around the events of the Hindu year, with more anecdotes from Madhur's childhood, and it's called Seasons of Splendor, Tales, Myths, and Legends of India. We have links to her work at ricksteves.com radio. And when you think about India today and when you were a child, I think of it as a landmass as as big as Europe and as diverse as Europe, with more people than Europe. Today, it's a, a gangly, fragile democracy, I think you could say, with a huge sea of poor people, a massive middle class. I mean, a middle class of more than 100 million people. More than the people that there are in this country is our middle class. So in India... 400 you, million people so are middle class. You could say there's half a billion desperately poor people, but there's more middle class people in India than in the United States of America. Wow. <laughs> That's, and you're surrounded by all sorts of complicated neighbors. Absolutely, who wish us not so well. Uh, so it's, it's a hard country, but at the same time, it has such history. It has such, yeah. and it, such and, beauty. And I, uh, I love the, the scene in your book. You're, you're talking about during your childhood, 
climbing a mango tree in your grandfather's orchard and exploring the world of hot and sour. Take us there. I mean, because this is the wonderful side of history, an intimate side of history. Here's a person who has done all sorts of wonderful and interesting things, going back to a humble childhood, climbing a mango tree and learning about the wonders of life, surrounded by all this tumult. Exactly. So every child in India grows up surrounded by all kinds of tumult. So we grew up in an orchard. And strangely enough, the orchard was something that came through the British as a reward <laughs> from the British <laughs> for having done something that helped the British anyway. So we, my grandfather had this property where he built his house. And as little kids, you know, you eat sweet things. Yeah. People say, what do Indians eat? Well, you start off by sweet things. Do you start out with spicy things? No, we can't eat spicy things when we're little kids. But we aspire to spicy things because we see grown-ups eating them. It's like wearing stockings and a girl says, oh, one day I'll wear stockings. You one day I'll eat spicy food. That's what you're dreaming about. So we had all these lovely mango trees in our, in our orchard. And the thing was to get them when they were raw. And when they're raw, they're sour. They're wonderfully sour. So we would, all my cousins and I, we would all climb these mango trees and we'd be on the branches like little birds with our pen knives. And then the eldest would take down a big mango, a green mango, and he would peel it and give us little slices. And we all carried up with our salt, pepper. It had a little roasted cumin in it, a little chili powder. And then we would dip the sour mango in that crunchy mango and then eat it. It was so delicious. And it was really a sign of growing up. So you I've graduated. With, I'm up. And your up. older cousins were higher on the tree yes, doing we the, the lead work. And they were sending you the beautiful mangoes and you were a- adventuring, really. Exactly. Oh. Talk about the cuisine of, of a child in Delhi. You were growing up in Delhi, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Like, you talked about the, the snack of wealth. What yes. is the snack of wealth? Oh, that was something. It's, it's still made today, but it's, it's uh, you don't know what it is. It's just called a snack of wealth, Dolat Kichat. That was the name for it. And this woman who used to bring it on her head, she had a huge tray, brass tray on her head, in which she carried these cups and the froth was coming right up to the top. If you imagine a cappuccino, it looked like a cappuccino, but cold. And you only got it in the winter. And I would say, how do you make it? She says, oh, my child, what can I tell you? It is made with the dew that comes from heaven. You know, stories like this, and it is, it does require dew from heaven. But it was an amazing snack made with milk that you then froth up. And it has to have a cold winter for it to get really cold outside. And then it has pistachios in it, and it has little almonds in it, and it has sugar in it. And it's all cold and frothed up. And you eat it with like a piece of bamboo that's cut into a kind of spoon. And you eat it with that. And the taste and the texture is like heavenly froth. Absolutely gorgeous. Now, that was in the days of the Raj. That was back in the the 40s or something. Today, do little children in India have the same delights, or is their food just convenience store munchies? Well, this lady certainly doesn't come around anymore. I was told by a cousin, she said, I can make it in my blender now, she said. Oh, it's not the same. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) Exactly. I said, no, you're not having the snack of wealth. You're having some blenderized. (laughs) Blenderized snack of wealth. (laughs) You know, I love in your book how you talked about at school. As a schoolgirl, you would share a lunch table with Hindus, Muslims, vegetarians, and carnivores. And then you would describe the intrigue of 
basically marveling at the lunches of your friends who came from different cultural backgrounds. Well, this is the thing in India, that here, if you go to school, all the kids probably know exactly the same food. They know chicken nuggets, they know a sandwich, they know a ham sandwich, they know a peanut jelly sandwich. There's no difference between what the kids eat. But in India, every home cooks such different food that what the kids bring in is remarkably different from what you're bringing in. So I, as a Hindu girl, would bring in certain types of things. A girl from South India would bring other things. A Muslim girl would bring probably some meat or or the other and lovely breads of a certain sort. A Jain girl would bring in vegetarian food like potatoes. Every girl brought in something different. So you were dying to try somebody else's because you were sick of your own. So if (laughs) if you had a curiosity, you would look forward to lunch pail cuisine. Absolutely. In midday, you'd take a break, you'd sit down, you'd travel around glorious, diverse India by peeking into the lunch pails of the other girls. And I still do that today. If you go (laughs) to India today, I was just, I'm writing another vegetarian book. So I was going around South India And everywhere I went, I went to this place where chilies were drying. And there was a woman sorting the chilies. I said, what are you going to eat today for lunch? Open your lunchbox. Let me look inside. (laughs) I still want to do that because it reveals a whole cuisine, a way of thinking of a particular group of people. Madhur Jaffrey is known as the Queen of Curries, and she's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She reminisces on her childhood in Delhi in her books Climbing the Mango Trees, and Seasons of Splendor. She's also published a number of curry cookbooks, including Curry Nation, Curry Easy Vegetarian, and At Home with Madhur Jaffrey. You can find videos of her Indian cooking lessons on YouTube and her curry recipes in the food section of bbc.co.uk. In your book, you talk about how the Punjabis are like Texans. They are. Everything has to be bigger now, who, first of all, who are the Punjabis? Because that's a beautiful place to travel. All right. So if you are aware of the map of India, as it is now, because now Pakistan has been split, Punjab used to be in the northwest. These of are the what, Sikhs, where the Sikhs live? The Sikhs also live there because uh-huh. they're also Punjabis. Right. The Punjabis who are not Sikhs and Punjabis who are Sikhs. Okay. And they all live in Punjab. Punjab was a huge, big state, a wheat-growing state Mm. of India. People think Indians eat rice, Mm. but we eat a lot of wheat, and this was a wheat-growing state. Unfortunately, when the British partitioned us, Punjab got partitioned. So half of Punjab is in Pakistan, Mm. and we have the other half of Punjab. But their food is glorious. It's rich, hearty Almost peasanty. It's like Italian food in the sense that it's the best of it is peasanty. Salt of the earth, rustic food. Rustic mm. of the earth, like mm. a good pasta or a, you know, it is very sim. I think very similar to Italian food. And Punjabis are proud. They do things they, bigger and better. They do, and they're bigger people, taller people, okay. big turbans yeah. if they're Sikhs, you know. Yeah. And they were a martial group. They rode horses. And now, when the partition happened, and a lot of them came to Delhi, no more horses to ride. So what do they ride? They took over the cab service, and, and we, they ride cabs. And we have Sikh cabbies in the United States. Yes, and if we you, have them in if, India, if, too. if you meet an Indian cabbie in the United States, he's probably a Sikh. <laughs> that goes back to their heritage as well, they're, they're, they're horsemen. Well, they're riders of and the guards, terrain. And they're traditionally the guards in the palace. Exactly, exactly. All right. In your book, you talked about discovering K-rations one Christmas. And when I read about that, <laughs> it just I thought, K-rations, what a humble thing. You know, military prepacked meals, right? 
But you found that, and it opened you up to wonders well, well beyond see, India. To you, it's just gay rations. And what happened was that they were suddenly, the war ended in 40, what? The oh, World, World War, War II. II. Was, uh, I see, it was 1945, so we had a yeah, lot of gay rations so floating around. 45, the war ended. Okay. And suddenly, the war had also been in our part of the world. Japan had attacked, yeah. and so the war was everywhere. And these gay rations have the a long life. The gay rations have a lo- <laughs> whatever, endless life, it seems. <laughs> so there was suddenly that and parachute silk were released. Parachute silk and K-rations. They were in all the markets. Everybody and was wearing... army blankets. I, I army grew up with blankets. army blankets. Exactly. Yeah. So everybody was in India was wearing dresses made out of parachute silk because ah. suddenly it was everywhere and cheap. Parachute and silk And then chic. there were the K-rations wrapped in this brown So what's in a, what paper. did you remember was in a K-ration? So then we would get them for like one rupee, a whole package. And the joy of opening it up like gorgeous treasure... And then what is inside? So the cigarettes you gave to your older cousins. Then there were olives. Oh, my goodness. I'd never eaten an olive before until I ate that. There was fruit cocktail. Can you imagine? And <laughs> you we only got like fresh fruit. Del- What's fresh fruit? You can get fresh fruit anywhere. Yeah. Oh, fresh fruit. We had you know fresh that, yeah. mangoes, fresh banana. Uh, fruit cocktail. All the fruit put together in a little can with a cherry, you know. <laughs> It was fascinating for us. And spam, my goodness. (laughs) My cousins and I used to cut the spam up into little pieces. We liked it so much, so it would last longer. Because these we'd (laughs) never... I've never heard anybody say, spam, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) But we were totally charmed. These were the exotic things for us. And that's just a, a wonderful thing about this planet, isn't it? I mean, spam and fruit cocktail can be a delight. And uh, a mango dipped in uh, hot and sour uh, spices can be a delight. Yes, exactly. Visiting with Madhur Jaffrey is like not wanting to get up from a really great meal. We'll continue with Madhur on her family life and eating in India in just a moment. And we'll check in with friends from Italy on how they manage the chaos their country is famous for and how we as visitors can better cope with things like rail strikes and crowds or what they call everyday life in Italy. We'd love to hear about the impressions you get from your travels in the form of a haiku poem. There's a link for sending us your original haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Claire J. Baker of Pinole, California, sends us this poetic snapshot after a walk in a woodsy state park along the Russian River. Among redwood trees in Armstrong Grove, we look up and keep looking up. Roy Barnes from Cheyenne, Wyoming, writes this after a trip to Spain. La Alberca's pig who bums around for morsels in the Spanish square. Shelley de Leon of Astoria, Oregon, tells us how her visit to Spain could have been improved. Outside Alhambra, is the one time I wanted some reservations. Cecilia Mazanek of Winter Park, Florida, paints a portrait of the view from El Montazo, a high spot in the Dominican Republic. Up above the world, puddles of colors below. If I could just jump. And Michael Venn emails us this haiku from his teaching position in Mokpo, South Korea. He adds he's been having some challenges communicating, both in and out of the classroom. 
how you're old, he asks. Wonder how sound I to him. Language gap is vast. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. We'll learn how people cope with strikes in Italy in just a bit. Right now, actress and writer Madhur Jaffrey is our guest as she shares memories from growing up in India and the power of flavors, smells, and even the simple elegance of a plain ripe mango to bring back the comforts of childhood. I always say India is my favorite country on this planet because it really mixes up all of my cultural furniture. It, it rearranges <laughs> yeah. in ways I didn't know was possible, mm-hmm. and it humbles my ethnocentricity. I grew up thinking I knew what what pain was, what time was, what love was, what music was. And they go to India, and there's a billion people who see it differently. Yeah. And for me, that's one of the celebrations of travel, and it's a beautiful opportunity. You've done a beautiful job of, of uh, packaging these observations because you had the opportunity to grow up in India and then live in... In, in Britain in and Britain, here, in, in America. In the United yeah. States. Now, you said during your childhood, it, it didn't occur to you that families could come in sizes of less than 30 people. <laughs> <laughs> big big families I, were the norm. Yeah, then. because you always lived with your grandfather. Many generations. Yes, basically. three generations were nearly always together. Okay. So it wasn't that one woman would have 30 children. No, no, it, no. It was that no, no, you'd no, have no, everybody, no. the extended family together. Yes, and a whole lot, there was comfort in that. There was also things that were not so nice about a big joint family like that. But I think there's great solace for children. There's mm-hmm. a great sense of belonging for children. But this was almost economic necessity, I think. To... It wasn't in our case. It wasn't, it wasn't okay, in our case. Because your family was a well-off family. Yeah, then. it wasn't at all. It was just my grandfather felt it was the right thing, mm-hmm. that we should all be together. Hmm. And he didn't let us leave. My father wanted very much to have his own household. But my grandfather said no. And in those days, you listened to your father. This thing about respect for elders was still there in India, very much so. Yeah. You know, it's so important when we do travel in India to travel in a way where we actually get away from our comfort zone and connect with the real people. I remember when I was in India, Madhur, you could take a tour of Bombay or whatever, and there'd be two tours, one for tourists and one for Indian travelers, because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of Indian travelers. Of course. And they would have the same route. But one would be in a fancier bus and go to restaurants in a hotel. Mm -hmm. And the other one would be in a simpler bus and they would go to very characteristic restaurants. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. one you'd eat with spoons and forks and the other you'd eat with your fingers. Yes. And I would save about 75% by taking the local tour. Yeah. And I think I would have triple the experience. Yeah. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. It's a shame if somebody goes to India and and never eats with their fingers. Well, I have to tell you. I was in Korea once and writing about Korean food, and there was this lady who cooked wonderful food for me. She was a cooking teacher, among other things. A very aristocratic kind of lady. And she says, I don't understand how you can eat with your fingers. Because they eat with these knitting needle-type metal chopsticks in metal Korea. Metal chopsticks, okay. So I said, I, I was so incensed, but I, she was my hostess, and I didn't want to say anything that was not correct. So I said, Madam... How would you feel about making love with metal chopsticks? Bingo. What did she say? She was just (laughs) quiet for a second. (laughs) So that's my experience. In in India, it's not a matter of elegance or class or upbringing. It is just correct in certain cases to eat with your fingers. It is. And you wash your hands before, you wash your hands after. James Beard, whom I worked with a lot, he used to say that hands are the best implement. Yeah. And he used to actually whisk with his with his hand. And he used to lift things with his hands, opening up his fingers, lift, you know, foods up with his yes. hands. And he developed 
a pair of, uh, I guess you call them spoons, for lifting salad up. Right. Which were like two hands, oh. made of wood. So he and had I, I wonder why nobody took that over from him. I still have his hands, the two wooden hands that he, really? he designed. But they're absolutely the best thing for picking up salad. I vividly remember going into fancy restaurants in India where I don't think there was a spoon and fork in the place. And there yeah. was like, I, I seem to remember a ceremonial sink in the middle of the room where where elegant people would wash their hands. Right. And it just felt right to eat with the fingers yeah. God gave you for eating. Because you can manipulate so much better. You don't have peas slipping but there's, off. But there's some tricks. For a long time, I was trying to shuffle it in, not realizing <laughs> I had to use gravity, and I'd use my thumb as a, like yeah, an ice cream like spoon flicker. to push flicker. it off. And then there's an art of eating soup with your fingers also. Yeah, there is. Can I can't do that, that so well. <laughs> that was, I, I saw that. That's and more I thought, South India. That was That's South more India. South India. That was, um, In the North, we, we don't do that. And we really do eat with the, only the end digits of our fingers. Okay. And we usually use bread to pick up the food. Okay. In so the farther north. South, you will have more of that. You will have more, more of, that. of that, yeah. More wet food. Madhur Joffrey is known as the Queen of Curries, and she's our guest right now from the Travel with Rick Steves archives to celebrate her birth in Delhi 90 years ago. She reminisces on childhood in India in the 1930s, and those memories are featured in her books, Climbing the Mango Trees and Seasons of Splendor. Madhur, you're a cook and an actress, yet you wrote a memoir. What do you hope that people will take away from reading Climbing the Mango Trees? I don't know why I wrote the memoir, and I don't know what people will take away from it. I wrote it. I didn't want to write it. Uh, My editor absolutely insisted that I write it. I knew there were going to be difficulties in writing it because the minute you bear, you can't just bear yourself. That would be fine. But you have to bear a few other people with you. Mm -hmm. And that's not always very pleasing to the other people whose lives you're sharing. And that was very hard. So I don't know what I expect people to get from it. I hope they learn a little bit about India of a certain Mm -hmm. period, Mm -hmm. uh, which not much has been written about this period post and pre-independence. And uh, I hope I will show them a period that they've never really intimately known before from one person's point of view. And there's an intimacy when you get beyond the headlines and you just climb the mango tree and and you recall uh, the, the little joys of life. Exactly. You know, when I want to recall my own childhood, the comfort food I, I seek out would be, I, I think back, what did my mother make for me? And it was like a beef stew and cornbread and apple cobbler. Mm-hmm. What's the one dish that your mother used to make for you that brings you right back to your childhood in Delhi? I think it's what we call dal, which is beans, split peas and beans, made with, so we would have moong dal, which is mung beans without mm-hmm. their skin, and split and they would be cooked very simply, and we would have them with basmati rice. And those two smells, the smell of basmati rice cooking in the kitchen Mm. and that plain dal Mm. with one little vegetable is to me heaven still. I can live on that. Even for a tourist, that's comfort food. It is comfort food. It's like rice and beans in Latin America. It was just bring on the dal. Yeah, bring on the dal. Madhur Joffrey, your editor was very smart to recognize <laughs> that you had a beautiful book hiding inside of you that was even more than a cookbook. It was, oh, thank uh, you. It was a cultural cookbook. And uh, best wishes. Uh, you've got me uh, fantasizing about climbing the mango trees in corners far, far away. Thank you. Thank you. 
Perhaps it's no coincidence that two of my favorite countries in the world are also known for being untidy, even chaotic, when all you want to do is something simple like buy a ticket for a train. Leaving India, let's check in now with a couple of friends who live in Italy for an intimate look at chaos Italian style. Traveling in Italy is so rewarding, but those who can handle the chaos that comes with Italy enjoy it even more. I'm joined now by Cecilia Botai from Umbria in Orvieto and Anne Long, an American who 34 years ago moved to Italy and makes her home in Sorrento. Thank you, Cecilia and Anne, for joining us. Glad to be here. Now, when I'm in Italy, the way people line up can be exasperating. And you've lived in Italy for 34 years. How do you handle the, the lines in Italy? There is no line. It's a concept, but it's never a reality. Uh, they're mainly horizontal. They're never vertical. They're very polite. The, mm-hmm. They'll even butt in front of you being polite because they just have to ask a question. Don't, yeah. you know, but that question then becomes doing what they had to do and they bumped you out of line, but they're very nice about it. Very polite. Cecilia, your family's been from Italy for forever. How do you handle the lines? As Anne said, there are no lines. Somewhere they have numbers you can get so that you are number 23 and you are number 23. That's in a hospital if you have to have blood analysis done. But in a post office, we don't have the system, for instance. So you have to be smart enough, watch your shoulders, watch your front. And this is a nice way to start talking to the people because if you want to be polite, so not rude, you don't show that you're just watching your shoulders because you don't want the people to go in front of you. You just find a good reason to talk to them. But this is the way it is, mm-hmm. and we won't change it. Well, that would make sense to get into a conversation, and then it'd be pretty tough to crowd in front of a person you're talking with. Now, what about strikes? I don't think I've ever gone to Italy when there wasn't a strike, threatened at least. What's your experience with strikes, Anne? Well, they like to strike. Once you've been here a while, you know that they are doing them certain months. You'll never have a strike in July and August because they're off on vacation. Why would they strike? They don't strike in December when it's Christmas. But when they come back after the holidays in the summer, be careful because October can be a a month where they start striking. What is the word for strike? A shopero. Shopero. You'll see signs, and you should be tuned into that. That's right. Shop- and listen, ask people, ask at the hotel. They've been talking about it weeks ahead of time in the newspaper or So whatever. there's a strike next Thursday on the trains. Either leave before or stay a little longer. Or if you're going to leave, if you just go to the train station and get on a tr- any train that's going in that direction, just keep working your way to your destination. Nobody knows when the next train's going, but these are kind of like nuisance strikes, it seems like, to Chile. In the United States, if something goes on strike, they're closed down for weeks. But in Italy, it's just an inconvenience, an intentional inconvenience. Absolutely, I agree. So a strike is hardly ever that dramatic. If the gas stations are on strike, they are on strike for a couple of days with a but. Mm-hmm. But those will work. If there is a bus strike, it's a strike, but a few buses will run. So it's always a strike with a but. So it's a they're paid holiday. To, they're just messing people up. Just it's kind messing of a people, yeah. In Italy, uh, it's famous for chaotic traffic, but I've known lately the traffic's getting a lot better in Italy. Yeah, this is an effect due to economy. Economy is not doing that well, so people use more public transportation, and even they drive slowlier because you you need less gas. Mm -hmm. Just to give you an idea, traffic in Rome has diminished by 25%. This is because people use more the metro or the bus, even if they have to stay longer on a bus before getting to their office. They have to do it because they can't make it to the end of the month otherwise. And what is your experience with uh, traffic in, in Italy? Well, I come from Naples. Naples is the capital of uh, just a mishmash of traffic and things. It doesn't matter 
what they charge for the gas, what they they mm-hmm. always have to be out. There's too many people in too small mm. a space. It's like sand in a bottle with stones. Wherever there's a gap, that's where they're going to be. The so traffic, the, the will, traffic go. will go. So you know, motorbikes and everything. In Italy, historically, the cars are littering the sidewalks. That's right. And then they put these posts to define the sidewalks, and it keeps the, the cars off the sidewalks. And, there, and, yeah. and that's been a, a big improvement, I think, over the years. They put a note very often, especially in the cities, they put a note, if you need me to remove the car, this is my phone number you can call me at, with the exception of the fact that if you don't speak Italian, you don't understand <laughs> So this is a quite common attitude in the large cities, many especially times, in Rome. I've been on a bus, and many times there's a little peanut-sized car blocking the road. I mean, there's no way anybody could get by, much less our tour bus. And the guy thought, well, I'll just go run and do my errand. And we literally have to get out of the bus, and we get six strong men and move the car onto yeah, the bounce. sidewalk so we can, we can drive through. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about navigating the chaos of Italy in our next trip. And what is the Italian feeling about the craziness of life there? Do you recognize it, or is everybody else just strangely organized? No, uh, we are used to it. And, you know, when we talk about Italy, it depends on where. Cows can be more or less intense, but we are used to it, so we always find a way around. It's a good way to train yourself. Since you were born with it, you know that you have to find yourself around. Because you wake up a morning and you don't know how you're going to finish the day. Every day is a conquer. That is what we say. <laughs> every day is a conquer. So there's a challenge to conquer every day. Absolutely. And you have to be creative. More than creative. Quick and creative. So you have to create quickly. Okay. Now, if you go to Germany and it's so efficient and so organized, does it just feel like boring? No, it's different. Yeah. You know that it, there is no creation required. But sometimes it gets a bit too flat to me. And long. You've lived in Italy for 34 years. Does it feel um, workable? How do you deal with the frustrations that come with becoming an Italian if you're used to American efficiency? I don't know if you ever really get used to it. You accept it. You learn that if you fight it, it's going to be worse than if you just accept it. And you try to see the funny side of it. Now, am I making too big a deal out of it, or, or is it really as chaotic and crazy as it seems to a tourist? It's awful. It, it's awful. And I say further south you go, the worse it gets in Italy. I'm down by Naples, and they invented uh, the word for chaos. And <laughs> they haven't invented a cure because they just like it the way it is. To Chile, is this true that the chaos gets a little chaotic or more chaotic as you go farther south? Absolutely. Why is that? Because the country, I mean, Italy has been influenced all its life long by the history. And in the north, there are more Germans or there are more French and everything is better organized. Mm-hmm. The farther south you go, the more is like the Arabian style. And you know that it's more flexibility in that culture. So this is why. And uh, the difference is also between large cities and small towns. So, uh, how so? Well, how so? Orvieto has 22,000 inhabitants. Rome has 4 million people. I split myself between Rome and Orvieto. I know that when I go out in Rome to do three things, I'm lucky enough if I can do one. (laughs) If I go out in Orvieto to do three things, I do the three plus another one. Something that's fascinating to me is the sport of tax evasion in Italy. And I know they've had laws recently that require businesses to give people a receipt and actually require purchasers to keep that receipt within 50 meters or something of the coffee shop or whatever. 
Cecilia, what, what is the ethic in Italy about paying taxes, and how is the government trying to get people to be honest? Well, to be honest, my answer is everybody would be happy to pay taxes if you get something in return. The problem is that very often we pay a lot and we get very little, and that is what drives Italians crazy. Also, we have some people who can avoid paying taxes because they have something that is not on their name. The money they make can be made under the name of somebody else, so the percentage is lower. Oh, so if you can divide your income in two, you're at a lower tax bracket? Is that the idea? You put it under somebody else's name. So you're still paying tax on it, but at a lower no, level? No, oh, no. Uh, well, you're not. You're just yeah, putting no. it under a fictitious <laughs> name. So this is your side business that's basically... Well, you know, if you put it under your uh, a child's name that's 18 who's not making any other money, you don't pay taxes I on see. that amount of money. So, and tell us more, because you come from... You're an American, uh, but, but you've lived in Italy for 34 years. What is striking to you about the Italian approach to taxes? Well, see, we're so used to our, our, our liberties here in America and just the fact that in Italy now with the new laws, the police can go into your bank account and look at it and they can check and see the movement. And if you've got money coming in and they have no reason to know where, where that money's coming from, they can come audit you. Is that you. right? It's absolutely right and they're getting stronger and stronger. The problem is still corruption, which is if I have the right connection with the finanza, that is the police that is meant to check on your taxes oh. or what, yeah, then by coincidence, nobody will check on your account. By coincidence, under the office of that specific doctor who makes an enormous amount of money, there is never the finanza checking. And uh, so tell me about the new ability of the government to check stuff. Well, I'm on, you know, being an American, I'm used to having privacy and things that there you have different rights and whatever. But with your bank account in Italy, the police can just go into any bank account and check to see where your money's coming from. So the Italian IRS can actually look into your bank account and know exactly... And with no reason to. They can just check it and if they see it. So, Cecilia, this is a big change, I think. Yeah, that's a big change, and I I absolutely agree. They can do it. It's uh, something they, they really can do without problem, with the exception of the fact that if you know people in that specific branch of the police and you don't want them to look into your account... They will not do it. So this is what is really quite amazing about Italy that is really hard for me to imagine. But even in this day and age in Italy, they can look into your bank account. But if you're well connected with the IRS guy, your family's all right. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for this little insight into Italy. And uh, good luck sorting this out because (laughs) we want the magic and the chaos of Italy. But we also want Italy to hold together. We'll do our best. All it's right. all part and package. <laughs> Mille grazie, and I'll see you next time in Italy, okay? Okay. Ciao. Okay. Thank Ciao. you very much. Arrivederci. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Casmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Gretchen Strapp read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku about your travel impressions. Details are at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves Guidebook to Italy has long been America's best-selling guidebook to any destination in Europe. We've just updated it, and it's in its 27th edition, and it's ready and raring to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Pick up a copy at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.